stop the boats. Familiar refrain in our politics. It uh, helped uh, Tony Abbott win an election, but those words are now um, echoing through the chambers of British Parliament as the Conservatives present their illegal migration bill. Ian, of course, columnist with the I newspaper, is back. Ian, you put yourself through the misery of live tweeting the bill's first debate in Parliament. Please break it down for us. Grim, extremely grim. Um, There's not even really a sense that most of the MPs on the governing side had read or understood even the, the very basic elements of the system that they were proposing. The proposals are... The most extreme refugee proposals I've seen in my lifetime, which is astonishing when you think that Rishi Sunak is ostensibly and seems to be a much more reasonable human being and a much more technocratic prime minister than, for instance, Theresa May or Boris Johnson or Liz Truss. But none of them put forward something as extreme as this because he is not tightening up the asylum application process. He is dismantling the asylum application process. What he is saying is, if you manage to make it to Britain in a boat or in any other way without having pre-authorization, which of course is impossible for a refugee to secure, you will never have your claim processed. We will basically put you in a detention centre, in a vast new detention estate, and then we're going to try and get rid of you, either to Option one, Rwanda, a third country, where you'll basically sit in a cell, as you well understand from, from, you know, Australia pursuing the same policy for many years now. Or we'll try and send you back to your home country, or we'll try and get a returns agreement to France to send you over there. But what we won't do is bother to find out if you've been tortured, if you've been raped, if you've been persecuted, if you're fleeing religious persecution. We won't even listen to your case. We will just put you in a detention centre and try and get rid of you. So it is essentially the end of Britain's asylum system and really an affront to any kind of even basic civilised value that you could attach to this country. At one stage, Australia was going to ship off uh, some of its uh, refugees or its asylum seekers to that haven of peace and tranquility, Cambodia. Why is Rwanda top of the list for the UK? Oh, they were just one of the only ones that would sign a deal with us. I mean, and now you get this sort of, this, this absurd hypocrisy on the Tory ventures of saying, oh, it's very racist. Anyone, anyone that criticised the Rwandan policy is racist because they don't think Rwanda could be a civilised country. Which, I mean, you know, just to even begin to try and express the moral decrepitude of using that attack is beyond us. But look, anyway, it doesn't work. I mean, Rwanda has said that they'll take 200 people. That's the full extent of what this project can offer. I mean, last year on the boats, we had just over 46,000 people come over. So it's not even a drop in the ocean. And of course, no one has been sent to Rwanda because of a series of both international and domestic court cases have not yet found it to be legal. If anyone does get sent off, it's going to be sometime next year. So in terms of that as a practical avenue for dealing with it, putting aside any of the moral concerns, it would be not even 1% of the people sometime next year if we were to be able to pursue that scheme. Okay, will it be uh, challenged in the courts? Oh, yeah, all of this is being challenged in the courts. But what's happening here really is an attempt to directly contravene international law. So the Strasbourg Court, the European Convention of Human Rights, which has a whole series of legal rights to protect refugees, 
That has essentially been discarded by the bill. There is a statement on the front of it going, look, it probably doesn't abide by human rights law. We're going to do it anyway. That's something that we really haven't seen from a government for a very long time. But of course, it is part of the process. So the, the intention of the bill is not to solve the problem. They know that Rwanda doesn't work. They know they don't have a returns agreement with France, so they can't send people there. They know that they can't send people back to their home country because the only way you can legally do that is to process the claim, which they're refusing to do. So this is the core thing about it. It's not intended to work. No one on the government benches thinks that it'll work. It's intended to set up a fight with international human rights law. That for their target demographic, it's not the majority of the population, but for their target demographic of potentially Labour swing voters, typically in towns, typically sort of electricians, plumbers, lower skilled workers, were actually quite receptive to these arguments. That is the intention of it. And even in that, I think you get a sense of, again, putting aside the morality, just the complete collapse in any notion of governance in Britain, that you, know, you have governments putting forward legislation that they know will not work in order to set up a political fight next year rather than address the problems that they've been presented with. Despite uh, human rights law, international laws, the Refugee Convention, in Australia, the, this cruel policy got not only... Well, it got tripartite, bipartite wasn't enough, it got tripartite support and to a tragic extent still does. Would Labor repeal the bill if elected? That's an interesting question. They're certainly opposed to it right now. Um, they, they prevaricate a little bit. They like to talk about how tough they'll be and, you know, oh, we're going to put the money from... We're going to cancel Rwanda and put the money into having a sort of cross-border police force, you know, trying to make sure that they don't look, as the Tories try to paint them, as these open-border utopians. Not that there's anything wrong with open borders, that an open-border utopian is essentially precisely what I am. But nevertheless, Labour can't afford to make itself look that way. Whether it's going to change this aspect, the closing down of the asylum application, is another question. It does seem like they probably would. Their, their, their record when they were in power was, was actually pretty grim on asylum. They, they would engage in exactly the kind of anti-refugee rhetoric that you'd hear elsewhere. However, they did manage to put in a process for processing claims, for getting people into the community once they'd received refugee status. Now, that process has completely collapsed in recent years. At the heart of the asylum question is ultimately processing. You can't stop people coming because nothing that you're going to do is going to be worse for them than what they face in Eritrea or Sudan or Afghanistan or Iraq. So they're going to come. So the question really is essentially an operational one. It is, are you going to be able to process their claims effectively? Now, of, of those 47, I beg your pardon, 46,000 who came over last year, less than 360 of them have had their claims processed so far. That's less than 1%. Our system for processing claims has completely fallen apart. Lack of staff, high staff turnover, antiquated IT systems, lack of specialist knowledge. And because of that, Everyone sits there waiting for a claim on state support. Labour government's record was much better, and I think we would expect, although we haven't had confirmation of it yet, that they probably would dismantle the policy and at least improve that processing framework. There's a prominent voice speaking out against it or spoke out against it, and this is a, a very well-paid and well-regarded BBC presenter who made a political comment on Twitter, and this has caused... A brouhaha. 
Yeah, the embarrassing fact is that the country and in fact all the news bulletins have spent far more time talking about this than they have the actual content of the bill. But then that's how you drift, you know, into having, into losing your asylum system altogether is just by being distracted by shiny things. And we have been very, very distracted. It dominated the news all of last week. His name is Gary Lineker. He is probably outside of David Beckham, the most famous footballer um, in the UK. Um, he was the captain of the England team when I was growing up and is all round just a very nice man. I mean, he was never booked when he played for England, for instance, didn't really do fouls, didn't complain. He then switched very effectively, very impressively, actually, to becoming a very, very good uh, TV presenter, presenting the football match of the day as the sort of flagship football analysis uh, programme on a Saturday night. And kind of a key fixture for millions of Brits is, you know, you go to the pub, you get back, you watch match of the day. He put out a tweet saying, this kind of rhetoric coming from Home Secretary Suella Braverman is equivalent to what we saw in 1930s Germany. And this was pounced on by the Home Secretary, by other cabinet secretaries, by the right-wing press of saying, oh, it's highfalutin, he's hysterical, he can't possibly abide by BBC impartiality. And the BBC in its current supine, semi-government-controlled way capitulated to that and tried to take him off air. What followed was just extraordinary. I mean, his, his fellow guests, Alan Shearer, Ian Wright, these very prominent sort of former footballers who present that show just said, well, if he's not on it, then I'm not going to do it. You had the commentators refuse to do it across the sort of sporting platform on the BBC. In this massive show of solidarity, people just pulled back and went, no, it's a free speech issue. He gets to talk if he wants to. And yesterday, the BBC fell on its own sword and said, OK, fine, he can come back. Oh, but he should, ab- he should still abide by our social media guidelines, which Gary Lineker responded to by putting out a tweet praising the tolerance of the British people and saying, well, you know, they show more kindness towards refugees than the government does. So it's, it's been a pretty aw- awful spectacle, but sort of with these diamonds of solidarity and support for free speech within it. Meanwhile, of course, BBC chair Richard Sharp has been under pressure for his role in facilitating a thumping £800,000 loan agreement for Boris Johnson. Yeah, exactly. And here, and here is where the real, the real story comes to light. And, it, and it's essentially an after-effect of Boris Johnson's administration, where really he's, he worked quite hard to corrupt almost all the institutions in British society, including the BBC. So Chairman Richard Sharp of the BBC, just weeks before um, applying for the chairmanship role, arranged a loan, hundreds of thousands of pounds for Boris Johnson to be able to buy some property. Now, no one questioned at the time, oh, how, how can this possibly be tolerated as a very obvious and venal act of corruption? He's now got the chairman role. To give you some impression of the hypocrisy of that attack on Gary Lineker and, and all these claims of impartiality, if that case had gone all the way to the top, it would have reached Richard Sharp desk, Richard Chop, who'd arranged the loan for the Conservative Party. But actually, the rock goes much deeper. You have Tim Davey. He's the director general of the BBC. He is a former candidate for the Conservative Party, has gone in there saying, we've got to make the BBC receptive to the Red Wall. In other words, those socially conservative voters who have apparently been ignored by the mainstream media all of these years. If you look at the BBC board in a non-executive director 
role is Robbie Gibbs. Now, he is the former director of communications for Theresa May when she was in Downing Street. So really, it's only partially a free speech matter. The other part of it is a very concerted effort by the Conservative government to take over the BBC and to eradicate it of any kind of progressive or liberal voices while claiming that this is a representation of impartiality and that the full extent of that process was really thoroughly on display over the last seven days. Kalu Kalei, you've got a new book out. It's called How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. What is it that people don't understand about it, uh, Ian? I mean, there's a lot that people don't understand, but I suppose the main thing is... It's, it's almost like, um, like a detective story, you know. You, you go looking in the British constitutional system for any element of it that actually knows what is going on, that has some degree of expertise, some degree of deep subject knowledge, some kind of rigorous scrutiny system for its decision-making, some kind of specialist awareness, whether it's technical or commercial or industrial or just on a knowledge base, and you find it almost nowhere. You know, looking through the system when you look at the civil service, when you look at MP selection, when you look at ministerial selection, when you look at the functioning of the Treasury, when you look at the functioning of Downing Street, you find almost no one who can know what they're talking about. And when they do know what they're talking about, they're typically moved between 18 months and two years later to prevent them ever gaining any kind of deep specialist knowledge. So then when you look at the outcomes that we have as a country, this ceaseless catastrophe in health policy and education policy and foreign policy and industrial policy and trade policy, it's hardly surprising because the system itself is rigged to make sure that no one who ever did know what they were talking about would ever find themselves in a position of authority. And that right there, to be honest, is the core narrative, the core message of, of what happens in that book. Oh, I can't wait for my fondly inscribed copy, but before <laughs> I let you go, we have to talk briefly, AUKUS. Sunak, Albanese, Biden have uh, just announced this big multi-million dollar submarine deal in San Diego. How's it playing in the UK? Well, firstly, I have to tell you that there was almost no coverage of it at all because that Gary Lineker story ate up all the bandwidth on pretty much every single outlet, and it's really the only thing that's been discussed. Insofar as it is, it's discussed predominantly in terms of the UK's domestic debate, and I think you guys have a similar one, on how we talk about China and the extent to which we consider it an enemy. Um, and that's predominantly conducted in the stupidest possible terms. So the, the vast majority of the debate is on phraseology. Will the Prime Minister call China a threat? Or a challenge. And there's a huge amount of, of sort of, of, of rhetoric that goes around whether he uses one of those two terms, which shows whether he's either a dove or a hawk. And then once he does call it a challenge, there's a lot of rhetoric around, is he going to call it a, quote, systemic challenge? Or is he going to call it, quote, an epoch-defining challenge? This is literally where our debate is. And yesterday he settled for epoch-defining challenge, which was his way of positioning himself almost as a sort of fairly hardline centrist in the China debate. And that ludicrous, infantile, childlike debate is pretty much the entirety of what passes for our analysis of this deal. Ian, thanks for that. And it's good to have you back, Ian Dunt, columnist with the I newspaper. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.